Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger, and I've got Steve Hayes, Jonah Goldberg, and drumroll please, new host of the Monday Dispatch Podcast, our interview podcast, Jamie Weinstein. Jamie, we're thrilled. I'm thrilled as well. It's a real honor to be uh, here and associated with the Dispatch. As I I mentioned to you when we were offline, that to the extent there is a publication that matches both my temperament and, and ideological outlook. Um, it, it is the dispatch. So it, it is truly, truly an honor to uh, to finally have an association. And y'all listeners are in for a super treat because Jamie is at his tip top interviewing people from across the political spectrum. I think you'll really enjoy the interviews with people he disagrees with the most. And uh, yeah, these are going to be on the same stream as this podcast. They'll come out on Mondays. But for right now, Jamie's going to, you know, toss it up with us a little here in our in our little roundtable podcast. So We have plenty to talk about today. We'll do a little GOP check-in on the 2024 race. I have some thoughts. I want to bounce off the boys here. And then, of course, the Biden primary challenge from Dean Phillips, as well as those independent candidates, be they Cornell West or RFK Jr. And finally, are we witnessing the death of the social justice movement on the left as, uh, you know, well... We'll just dive into that. I think I think you can guess where that's going. Let's dive right in. Jonah, I want to talk about Mike Pence dropping out of the 2024 GOP primary. Um I know I have the side bet with Steve, high stakes, but Pence dropping out on the one hand tells you where the Republican is or where the Republican Party, uh, sorry, has been and where it's not anymore that Mike Pence, the guy who sort of has every check mark, every policy from the Reagan Republican era, got no traction in the 2024 GOP primary. But there's another version where it just says Donald Trump's above 50%. And the difference between Mike Pence and even Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Rick, uh, Tim Scott or any of these guys, like Mike Pence wasn't that much worse off. It's just that nobody's getting any traction. Our mutual friend, Kristen Solter Sanderson, makes this point about why political polling is not as reliable as other forms of sort of survey research, because there's just, there's too small a data sample, right? So like there are lots of there are lots of explanations why Mike Pence dropped out. And the people who want to say it's because the old Republican Party is dead will say it's because the old Republican Party is dead. and It's non-falsifiable right now. Um, There are other people like me who think that like personality uh, is really, really important in politics right now. More so it's always important. Um, But. His personality, I mean, like. I have nothing but well, I have respect for Mike Pence. I think the way he behaved on January 6th will will color him, will will stand him well in history and all of that. I don't necessarily have the same praise for the four years as, of him being vice president, but that's neither here nor there. Um, he, I think he's a man ultimately of integrity, but I've watched people eat soup and be more exciting than listen to Mike Pence on the campaign trail. And he is just not an, an energetic, 
thrilling character. And in a time where politics is so much more about entertainment than it is about substance, I think that could arguably be as big a problem for him as anything else. And then lastly, none of these candidates are doing are moving their numbers based on issues. Like we just we're going to talk about the speakership race in a second, but like the speakership race or whatever that was, um, I think demonstrated more than anything else right now how the Republican Party is not defined by stances on issues. When when all of us were growing, well, maybe not you, Sarah, but like when the rest of us were growing up, um, uh, the definition of a rhino was somebody who was squishy on a, an issue, abortion, defense, taxes, something like that. Now the definition of a rhino is just somebody who is insufficiently loyal or praise, praising of Donald Trump. That's not an issue thing. I mean, I mean, you can call Donald Trump an issue if you like, but that's not, you know, it's not a policy issue. And, and so I, I just think Pence's dropping out has to do with the fact that Trump beat him up. Anybody that Trump beats up loses popularity. He's not a particularly compelling, charismatic character, and no one cares about issues. So, like, of course he dropped out. But um, I, I think the Republican field is, is a little worse because of it. But, you know, that's about all I got on. Jamie, is the Republican field actually worse? Or, you know, if everyone tomorrow dropped out except for Nikki Haley, would this race look fundamentally different to you? Or would it actually look kind of the same to you? I mean, I guess in theory, the argument is the only chance to defeat Trump is to have uh, a limited primary field. But I, I agree with Jonah that this is about brand. And how how, how is anyone going to beat a brand which they were calling just, you know, a short time ago, a guy, the greatest presidency of all time, and now you're going to run against him? Um, obviously, I don't think that was the case, but it's hard to praise someone as being near godlike and then try to run a primary against him saying, oh, I should be uh, the nominee, not him. New God. <laughs> so all these candidates have that problem. They're all on tape. I mean, especially Ron DeSantis with that campaign ad uh, when he ran for governor, uh, treating treating the guy that they want to displace as, you know, near perfect. Um, but I think the optimistic take from that would be that I don't know if the Republican Party is permanently changed on issues. When Donald Trump leaves the stage, it leaves a void for a, a new personality to take over and whatever those sets of, set of, sets of issues that that personality has may once again change the Republican Party. But I don't see how you displace the Donald Trump brand as long as, long as he's there. Um, so it seemed, seemed obvious that, that Mike Pence uh, would ultimately have to drop out. And I think the sad part of this, and we might see a lot of it, is Donald Trump likes nothing more than people that bend the knee once, as a lot of people did in 2016. He's going to get a lot of people probably bending the knee twice, as all these candidates who ran against him in the primary realize that they can't win, and they're going to go on stage and ultimately, I think, endorse Donald Trump when he is the nominee again. And, and that's a, a double humiliation coming. Steve, let's bring Mike Johnson into this conversation. This is the new Speaker of the House for Republicans and how that's been going for him for the last few days. Uh, is he going to be able to keep his coalition of Republicans together when, as Jamie and Jonah seem to agree, this isn't about policy, it's about vibes, and really more than vibes, it's about Trump vibes? So I, I think Mike Johnson will have more room to maneuver than, um, certainly than Kevin McCarthy did. Um, he has people in the House Republican Conference who have been part of the um 
the, the small group that was sort of out to to remove Kevin McCarthy, who have already said behind the scenes, hey, Speaker Johnson, I will give you my vote on the CR. Um, whenever we get to this short-term funding thing, I'm not going to oppose you because it's important that Republicans can govern. It's important that we can function. I think insofar as he, he came to this position without having made many promises and certainly without having broken many promises to his fellow Republicans in the House, uh, that's an advantage. And it's an advantage that Kevin McCarthy, who was basically by the end of his tenure, totally devoid of trust, um, that's an advantage for, for Mike Johnson. No doubt. Um, as he gets into the process and people scrutinize what he means when he says, of course, it would be uh, a negative if Russia prevailed in its war with Ukraine and, you know, he gets the J.D. Vance's of the world coming after him just for that basic statement. Um, then I think things get a lot, a lot trickier pretty quickly for him. Just a quick note on on Mike Pence. I mean, Sarah, I think it's interesting when you go back and you look at the the course of Mike Pence's campaign, the interview that we did with him in the spring, um, you know, we had both, we'd, we'd read his book, we'd talked to him about what we wanted to, to dis we'd talked to each other about what we wanted to discuss with him and, um, you know, came in with a, a number of questions that I think were thought to both probe his, his, thoughts on the race, his theory of the race, and also sort of how he was going to be handling issues. And I think it's fair to say that we were both surprised at the end of that interview with how sort of forthright and blunt he'd been and how willing he was to say things that were, th that no political strategist would have told him to say. You know, I pushed him on entitlements and spending and he just conceded the point. I mean, I expect I, you know, the Trump administration with you as vice president was horrible on spending. Um, we floated Mick Mulvaney's quote that we mentioned here pretty often about Trump having spent more in the first two years than Obama spent in the, the last two years of his administration. And Pence didn't really even push back on it. And I think we saw in that interview what would become sort of the themes of his campaign, where he would speak pretty bluntly about the things that he saw as problems. Um, there were also evolutions from that early interview. Remember in the early interview, we pushed him on how he fits in because he was more of a Reagan conservative. And he said, ah, I don't really see the, the, the gap that you're describing between the Reagan conservative and the populists. And by the end of the campaign, he was making arguments that this kind of Trumpian populism is totally at odds with Reagan conservatism. So I, I, I think we, we, that, that was sort of the, the Mike Pence campaign um, in a nutshell. I do think, I just have to say, plenty of criticisms what Mike Pence did as vice president, as Jonah said. Certainly think he deserves credit for what he did on January 6th. I do think in this moment of extreme cynicism, um, he did make good arguments on important issues. And he did it at a, at a, at a, in a way that was unlikely to win him political support. And full stop, I think he deserves credit for that. I would have would have had him criticize Donald Trump differently. I would have had him make different arguments that he ended up making, but he deserves credit for for doing that. And I'm glad he was in the race. I think it will be interesting to see if anyone picks up on uh, on some of those arguments. I suspect not because they're trying to win. And two, where does Mike Pence end up? He left open the possibility, as Jamie, I think, alluded to, that he could once again 
support Donald Trump in a head-to-head race with, with Joe Biden. But his arguments, particularly over the last several weeks of the campaign about Trump and about populism, seem to suggest that that, I mean, it would be awkward to square those arguments with what he said about Donald Trump, saying that Donald Trump asked him to act in an unconstitutional way, um, that Donald Trump's populism is um, direct contradiction with the way the framers thought of the, the American experiment. I mean, these are pretty heavy arguments. Be interesting to see if he ends up in Trump's camp once again. I want to touch on just a couple other things around here. Um, One, I know you guys aren't the biggest fans of Donald Trump. That's an understatement. But I do want you to take off your, uh, you know, feelings hat and just put on your political prognosticator hat. Because one of the arguments six months ago that we were talking about that a Nikki Haley or a Ron DeSantis should be making that they really weren't was that electability argument. And it was a much easier argument to make a year ago than it is today. You have Donald Trump and Joe Biden tied in a lot of polls. You have Donald Trump ahead in a lot of polls. You know, pulling it this far out, I don't think actually tests a lot of what we would see on election day exactly. But it's telling you something. Um, Donald Trump, for instance, isn't so toxic a brand that he's 20 points down, something that you might have suspected three years ago, you know, on January 7th, 2021 or something. Um, So my question is this, who actually fares better against Joe Biden today? Is it Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis? I'll let you pick which one. Or is it Donald Trump? Jamie? My my view had always been that from the moment he left office, even after January 6th, he Donald Trump was at worst the second most likely person to be president in 2025. And I never thought that he didn't have a chance to beat Joe Biden. Uh, and I never thought really any of the primary contenders had a chance to beat him in the primary. But if you were saying, you know, if you could have anybody uh, in the general election who who has the best shot of, of, yeah. of beating uh, Joe Biden, uh I think that a younger, more um, uh, kind of enthusiastic Nikki Haley or even a Ron DeSantis, when you have that contrast with with, with Joe Biden, kind of someone at the, the, the end of his career, I do think that would be more exciting to independents and they would have more, they, they would have a very good chance of, of, of winning the presidency. But I don't think you're going to get that. And I do think Donald Trump has a very, very good chance himself of beating Joe Biden. And I think it might depend. Um, on whether we ever get that recession people have been predicting forever. Maybe it's just delayed till the summer. And if you go, if you go into the election day and there is a recession, uh, you know, a lot of voters could just vote out the, the current, the current occupant of the white house and pick, pick the guy who's running against him, which probably will be Donald Trump. Jonah, any disagreement there? Not, not a profound disagreement. I just see it's, I, I just frame it a little differently. I think that, um, first of all, I can give you, a really seriously cogent, long answer about why Donald Trump can't win. But then I can also give you a really seriously long, cogent answer about <laughs> why Joe Biden can lose. And that's the weird <laughs> thing about this moment, right? Is that, and I think, I agree with you, national polls are just really dumb to look at for all sorts of reasons. But we all know that this election is going to boil down to basically five, at most seven states. And the idea that Donald Trump can't put together Michigan, Wisconsin, 
you know, Arizona, whatever. I don't know what the, you know, which, which ones he needs to do it. But when you look at the margin of popular, of popular votes by which Joe Biden won the Electoral College in 2020 and the margin by which Donald Trump did in 2016, it is obvious that either of these people could be the next president if they're the nominees. On the question of who would be better in the, the better Republican candidate, I think the part of the problem with the question is, is it presupposes that if Donald Trump isn't the nominee, he doesn't throw gasoline on everything and say, and try to take his ball and go home. And he could very easily, and in fact, I would say it's likely that if he's not the nominee, for whatever reason, he's thrown in jail. He's uh, certainly if he loses fair and square in the primaries, he will say it was stolen. It was rigged. Um, he will tell people that you can't trust anything. He will do. He will say things that, whether they're intentional or not, will encourage violence, and he will have a profound. He would have a profound impact on turnout if he didn't do that stuff, right? Which I think is a very difficult. It's a very big if. I think Ron DeSantis has a much better chance of uniting the current coalitions that make up the Republican Party. He is the second choice for a lot of Trump voters. A lot of his voters' second choice is Donald Trump. Um, he checks a lot more boxes in the existing coalition. I think Nikki is the more likely, would be better placed to, Nikki Haley would be more, would be a better candidate in the general election because she's not scary, as my friend Charlie Cook likes to put it. She's closer to what we call just simply a generic Republican, and generic Republicans are actually the best candidates, presidential candidates in a long, you know, in history. Um, the problem is that most Republican candidates actually have personalities or lack personalities that make them deviate from what actual the generic Republican support would be. She also being a minority and a woman, she's less scary than Ron DeSantis. She's less scary than Donald Trump. And so for a lot of moderates, independents, swing voters, Biden protest voters and the like, I think that she, she could expand the presidential coalition for the Republican Party outside of people with R's after their names in ways that DeSantis cannot. Um, but all of this is academic because, again, I think that, that, that Trump has a nihilist sort of attitude about this stuff. And if, it's, if, if the election isn't about a referendum on him, then he, doesn't, he would prefer to see Republicans lose. We'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah 
Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code dispatch at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Steve, there was this New York Times story that in the next Trump administration, Trump's allies uh, want him to hire a different kind of lawyer. And this made me think about the Johnson, you know, Speaker Johnson stuff a little bit because uh, part of what that speaker race, and I'm going to use that term kind of loosely, um, really showed was this problem of elevating victimhood like losing proves your purity, um, being in the minority on some issue uh, makes it elevates your cause. We're seeing it across the board. It's not just on the right, obviously, a subject we'll get to later. But the point of this article was that the lawyers in the first Trump administration were uh, too, quote, weak. Um, according to his allies now, they weren't sufficiently sort of pure of heart or something. I'm just left laughing because um, I was a lawyer in the Trump administration, obviously. First of all, to call them weak, that wasn't actually their complaint at the time. Their complaint at the time was that the lawyers were too strong in pushing back. Bill Barr wasn't too weak after the 2020 election. Um, They were annoyed that he was too strong. But maybe more to the point, these were lawyers telling them how to legally do the things that they wanted. And they want to make sure that doesn't happen next time They want lawyers just to say yes to whatever they want to do and then lose in court because that's how they'll prove that they're the ones that are pure and that it's in fact, you know, the Federalist Society are the bad guys now. They In the story, it's uh, one of Trump's allies says the Federalist Society doesn't even know what time it is anymore. And so this is great, right? You have these ideas. They're not remotely plausible. They won't pass muster in any court of law. And then when that's proven true and judges strike it down, it just proves how great you were in the first place or something. The logic's a little twisted, but like it's there. Um, so I guess my question, Steve, is, is this the whole Republican Party now? But before Steve answers, can I just get a legal clarification from you? Are you saying that the purity of what's in someone's heart doesn't settle legal questions? Well, take, for instance, the the quote-unquote travel ban. Uh, you know, this gets into the weeds a little bit, but the first travel ban was almost certainly not going to pass legal muster. And it was a coalition of lawyers, both in the White House and in the Department of Justice, that convinced the Stephen Millers, the Donald Trumps, et cetera, to change the travel ban so that it could be legal. So then the Supreme Court upholds the travel ban. And I think what they're trying to say is, aha, but see, this proved that you were compromising in your values and that you wouldn't fight for the original, you know, strongest version. And it's like, yeah, but that you would have lost at the Supreme Court on that one. But you, I think they wanted to lose in part because then it's not about governing. It's about who has the most Again, like pure ideas, whatever you want to call it, Steve. I think that piece, that argument, makes this broader point that I've been to steal a Jonahism pounding the table about um, for months now. 
like it's fine to ask whether you know Ron DeSantis would be better than Nikki Haley as you know as a Trump stand-in or has a better chance against Joe Biden. All of the questions that we've entertained here, but it strikes me as so unlikely that that's what w- the reality that we'll be dealing with. Um, there's almost no scenario, at least in my mind, where this is a traditional presidential election where we just end up having this kind of contest between Joe Biden and whether it's Trump or DeSantis or Nikki Haley. Some of some of it for the reasons that Jonas suggests, I mean, Donald Trump, if he were to lose, if he were not to prevail, either in a Republican primary or in a general election, he's not going quietly. I mean, he clearly, demonstrably, provably lost the 2020 election. And look where we are. Look at what happened in the interim. And I think the arguments that you're seeing from Trump supporters. And these are the people, we should be very clear about this. These are the people who are going to be staffing the highest levels of the the Trump administration if there were to be another one. They are running a project designed to do that. So these are the people who are going to be running the government under Donald Trump in a second Trump administration. And they are saying things in public a year out from the election they're just straight up authoritarian. It's not like we're running a traditional Republican campaign and he, you know, Trump occasionally says something that crosses over some uh, you know, imaginary line of what's normal or acceptable in our politics. Trump is living on the other side of that line. His entire campaign is pushing what I would call authoritarian promises. They're quite open about this. They're talking about it regularly. And I think that the the, sort of the main dynamic in the race one year out is that the Republican Party, sort of the rank and file Republican Party, don't get that that's what's happening. The the regular primary voters, they they sort of are along for the ride. They think back to the, the Trump era and they think, ah, the economy was better. You know, we weren't we weren't faced with the stuff that we're faced in, in Israel, Iran seemed to be bottled up a little bit more. Things, my life just seemed to be better. And we're not paying careful attention to the kind, to the way that Donald Trump is running for president this time around. And I think it's going to matter. Can, can I jump in on the, the, why I think he wants more aggressive lawyers? I, I don't doubt, um, and, and that might be part of it, what you said, Sarah. But I, when I hear that the Trump administration wants more aggressive lawyers. I hear he wants people more like Roy Cohn was for him. Someone who pushes the line of uh, legality and will go over. He doesn't necessarily want to argue these cases in front of court. He wanted Bill Barr to see, uh, give legal justification for sending people in to seize voting machines. He wants uh, um, uh, not have to go to Zelensky to uh, start a, uh, ask him to do a, 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 a case against uh, Joe Biden's son. He wants Bill Barr to organically launch an investigation on Joe Biden's son, whether that investigation goes anywhere or not. Or has merit or not, honestly. I mean, yeah, or merit or not. He, he wants people to do uh, not necessarily court cases, kind of legal lawfare things that he does with defamation suits. He has that one lawyer who sends letters out suing people uh, for, for saying things about Melania. Or uh, he, he wants someone just to be his, his personal hatchet legal man, almost like Michael Cohn was, but who wasn't nearly as good as Roy Cohn at it. Um, I think I think that's what he says when he wants aggressive lawyers. I think that's a good point. I mean, it's sort of like with his thing with Zelensky. Just want him to say they were invest- there was corruption yes. and then he would do the rest. Or he told Bill Barr, 
say there was fraud and then we'll we'll handle it. You want someone to give a top line for a press release. Um, and supposedly, supposedly he asked Bill Barr, if I believe, if I remember the coverage right, that to do that first before he went to Zelensky. He asked the Justice Department to do that and, and they weren't they weren't doing it. So then, you know, he brought it up to Zelensky. But I, I think Sarah's I'm I'm with I'm on Team Sarah on this, and that I think the people around Trump, their thinking is, um, more of this culture of losing. We will, um, um, prove our purity if, if, if we lose in courts, kind of thing. Because that's 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 the mind virus that's going around on the hill too. And just to correct Steve on one thing, he said that it was a Jonahism to say pound the table. That's a Khrushchevism. Um, the Jonahism is pound my spoon on my high chair. That's right. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you reduced yourself to toddler status. Look, I, I think I think it's not. It isn't just that Trump wants the press release. I think that's true, and I think Trump would take the press release. He said that basically at one point in the in the Zelensky scandal that led to the, to his first impeachment. I think it's that Trump wants this stuff done. He doesn't care about the legal niceties of this, so he wants lawyers who just cut through the. Shit right? It's like he doesn't want to get bogged down with procedures and going to trial and taking depositions and all. He just wants it done. So he wants people who will come in and bang heads until they get it done, which again, I think is, is these are his authoritarian tendencies. And he's being pretty open about it. I'll tell you what's keeping me up at night right now. And this will, uh, by the time this airs, the collision will be out. My newsletter with Mike Warren. This week, state courts in Colorado and Minnesota are starting their hearings on whether Donald Trump can be barred from appearing on the ballot because he's disqualified from serving as president under uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Uh, And again, I won't dive into all of the legal arguments around that. We've had lots of conversations about it on the flagship podcast, Advisory Opinions. Um, But look, from a political standpoint, it almost doesn't matter because let's just take the Minnesota one because it's going to move the fastest in Minnesota law. This goes directly to the Minnesota Supreme court. So they are the ones hearing this case this week that can then get appealed directly to the U S Supreme court. Let's assume, which I think is the more likely outcome that the Minnesota Supreme court says, yes. Uh, you know, in short, January 6th was an insurrection and Donald Trump gave aid and comfort to enemies of the United States on that day. Therefore he's ineligible to serve as president and can't be on the ballot. And that gets appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then basically in the earliest part of the year, we're talking maybe January or February, um, is going to have to decide what do you keep Donald Trump off the ballot, a guy who's supported by tens of millions of Americans who people will have already voted for at that point in their primaries. Or do you keep him on the ballot, which will, um, you know, in a, potentially a 6-3 decision. That'll be so much more cataclysmic for the Supreme Court than Bush v. Gore ever, ever was. It'll make Bush v. Gore look like a little, you know, sparkler compared to the nuclear reactor that will be this case. Um, Either way, I think think no one's preparing for what the rocking that is coming here in short order. And not just on that. I would say, I mean, this is, this is sort of my, my, big picture look at 2024. The things the things that now seem small or obscure or unlikely, I think are a lot more likely to matter in determining who the next president is. 
than the things that have traditionally mattered, like who's having a three-point bump in Iowa in early Republican polling because he or she had a great event in Davenport. Uh, I just think those things are just less likely to matter given this constellation. And it's it's important to remember, too, there's a new uh, a new book out by our friend Jonathan Carl, um, excerpt out this morning. We're recording Thursday morning uh, in The Atlantic. And th- there's this scene, our own uh, Declan Garvey helped research the, the book for, for John with John. Um, but there's a scene where John Carl is talking to Steve Bannon, who was and remains one of Trump's um, top advisors. And Bannon is describing a speech that Trump gave at CPAC and labels it as his come retribution speech. And the come retribution speech is actually uh, come retribution. The phrase is a sort of a code word for the assassination, the Confederate Secret Service's plot to take hostage and eventually assassinate President Abraham Lincoln. This is in the Atlantic excerpt of John Carl's book. Um, and when John Carl went and asked Steve Bannon about this, said sort of like, hey, do you know what come retribution means? Do you mean, and asked him about a book where that's described. Bannon said, yeah, that's it. At another point in the conversation, he calls uh, Trump supporters, the, the, the sort of leaders of the Trump supporters, Trump Davidians in an explanation as to why Donald Trump held his first rally in Waco, Texas. The, Steve Bannon has a, his podcast has a huge following. Um, he's got people who are, I think, prepared to act on some of this. And a lot of this is just happening outside of the rather polite conversation that we're having about things taking place in Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina. And I think, again, that stuff is likely to matter more than many people are uh, believing at this point. All right. Talking about things that matter, Jamie, uh, Dean Phillips is officially on the New Hampshire ballot and Joe Biden is officially not on the New Hampshire ballot. I don't want to spend too much time on the like intricacies of this. Uh, you know, Dean Phillips will not be on the Nevada ballot, uh, not the Florida ballot. Like there's a chance this guy's really not on many primary ballots at all at this point. Um, And there's a chance he's going to win New Hampshire because Joe Biden, as I said, isn't on the ballot in New Hampshire. There's going to be a write-in campaign for Joe Biden in New Hampshire. Uh, Okay, I'm a little bit shrug on all of that. Um, You have Cornell West as an independent in the race. You have RFK Jr. as an independent in the race. And you have a primary challenge of sorts to Joe Biden this actually seems like people on the center and the left are more dissatisfied with their choice than people on the right. I don't see any Republicans or former Republicans running as independents. You know, John Kasich isn't, um, you know, throwing his hat in the ring or Huntsman or I don't know, fill in any of the Johns you want. Um, That seems odd if you were to explain to the aliens who Donald Trump is and who Joe Biden is and be like, yeah, and people are real up in arms about that Joe Biden guy being the Democratic nominee. It is interesting. I mean, th- there's no one, I would say, serious in the Democratic Party running against nope. Joe Biden. So you have all these figures. I, who, I mean, raise your hand if you ever heard of Dean Phillips before he decided that he wanted to run for president. Maybe, maybe you guys had. I had never, never heard of him. 
Um, and so, I mean, I, I can't imagine that matters very much. You could argue that the one person who, you know, is running against Trump in a, in a certain way is is uh, RFK Jr. now as an independent. There's an argument that he's taking more from from Donald Trump. And there was this poll recently, which actually shocked me, where it was a three-way race and he was in, a, in the 20s. Um, at that point, Biden won, I think, like with 39, Trump with 36, and the remainder to 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 RFK Jr. If that holds up, that will be you know, very interesting to see RFK Jr. on, on the debate stage with with Trump and, and Biden. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you're not seeing any serious primary challenges, I think, emerge on, on either side. I mean, I guess, in, in effect, you have the, the Republican primary. Those would be the equivalents of the Dean Phillips and the Cornell Wests uh, running against Biden. Um, but I don't think any of them really are going to displace who are the likely nominees and the likely next presidents, which will either be Donald Trump or um, uh, Joe Biden, unless, you know, there's an illness. Uh, I mean, I think that's the, the greatest threat to one of those people being president is, is that they're very old. And, you know, anything can happen. when Anything can happen when you're old. That'll be the tagline of this podcast. Jonah, speaking of old, uh, coming to you now. Uh, but like, I've been the one poo-pooing third parties. But it does feel like if there were ever going to be a successful third party candidacy, it should be now, you know, in the Romney book that McKay Coppins wrote, talks about running with Oprah Winfrey or, I don't know, some other dream ticket. Is this the most we're going to see of third parties? Because like Jamie said, I mean, Dean Phillips isn't beating Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination. Cornell West, uh, RFK Jr., maybe they'll take more from one side or the other, whatever else. But we're not even talking Ross Perot level at this point. So why aren't we seeing then someone, you know, Matthew McConaughey want to throw his hat in the ring in a serious way. Um, so I think we talked about this before. Um, I, I, I think the best, expo- the, the two biggest, st- the, 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 the two biggest bulwarks against Joe Biden not being the Democratic nominee are, the, are Kamala Harris being vice president and everyone thinking that she could lose 40 states. And two, while a lot of Democrats would happily stab Biden in the back if they thought they could be the next president. None of them want to be held responsible for getting Donald Trump elected. Like, the party can forgive you for ambition. The party cannot forgive you for getting Donald Trump reelected. And so I think the Dean Phillips thing is actually really interesting because it is kind of an unprecedented primary challenge in American history. Primary challenges are almost always about issues of one kind or another, right? You know, like uh, Pat Buchanan going after the globalist, you know, New World Order, Bush administration, or Ross Perot on trade or that, or the, and the deficit, that kind of thing. As far as I understand, Dean Phillips has no ideological objections whatsoever to Joe Biden's presidency. He just says he should be ordering a second round of Jell-O at the home. And that's it, right? It's just an age argument. And, um, and to me, the weird thing about that is that is both a weak argument and a strong argument because it is a way to argue that we don't actually want to change the course. We just want a different captain at the helm. And that could be reassuring to people. That said, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I do think, though, that we're conflating primaries and third-party stuff. And um, 
they're kind of different things. And I also think there's a, there's a, I don't know what we would call it, but there's a third, as you would say, bucket here. Um, apparently, um, I heard Scarborough this morning saying that, and I tried to find a news article about it and couldn't, that no labels is now saying openly what they used to say in private. This is Scarborough's uh, account. Um, that they want to put up favorite sun candidates in various states to steal 2%, 1%, 5%, maybe, of the vote from Trump in various battleground states. Um, you know, put Paul Ryan up as a nominal guy on the ballot in Wisconsin. Paul Ryan would lose in a landslide against Donald Trump in Wisconsin. But would he lose uh, by 51 to zero? Probably not, right? And so two, three points there could help. And so um, I also think that Cornell West can, has no chance of winning. You know who really has no chance of being the nominee or being the president is Chank Unger, or whatever, how you pronounce his name. Guy who, who, who admits that he is uh, ineligible to be president of the United States because he was not born here, but says, I'm doing it anyway. Um, uh, but I do think like the Israel stuff in particular now gives a potential, gives a lot of maybe not in strong numerical terms, but in terms of, of, of motivating passion for like the college students who typically hand out flyers and knock on doors and do a lot of like the street campuses and stuff. Some of those guys are going to now go to Cornell West because Cornell West is going to say, I don't know what, I don't in fact know what he's saying about Israel right now, but I know he says very stupid things about Ukraine. So I'm assuming he will say stupid things about Israel as well. And, um, and so you could see it's kind of feeling like in a weird way, we might have a replay of 48 um, without the additional parties in the same way. You know, 48 was a four-way race and it was really hard to game out. It just kind of feels like there are going to be enough reasons for various candidates not to get a majority or win states that they otherwise would win because of people pecking at their heels. So I just, it's very hard for me to figure out. But I think Dean Phillips could have an impact. I do want to say that I'm enjoying to no end as someone who's been very critical of Steve Schmidt, the campaign, the guru behind the Dean Phillips thing. Um, who I have, I have um, very strong opinions about. Um, I am really enjoying watching his um, MSNBC sort of fan base um, eat him alive for uh, um, daring to try and destroy um, Joe Biden. And, um, I plan on having comment, further comments at a later time about all of that. Can I make just a tangential point here? Which We love tangential points, Jamie. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, this, is, this actually is the real name of this podcast is The Tangent. Yeah, there's the remnant, but there's now the tangent. Jo Jonah, Jonah made uh, you know, an interesting point about the Israel stuff and how, especially uh, you're reading a lot of articles in the Arab American community in Michigan where um, you know, Joe Biden might lose support there. And that's obviously a swing state. Um, I wonder if it's less, you know, them going to Cornell West as, as Donald Trump, who likes to try to get on all sides of an issue, how he tries to play that to try to win that vote in that important swing state where he plays both, you know, the pro-Israel side and then uh, the pro-Arab side. He tries to kind of, you know, uh, get both of those sides through some, you know, elliptical language. Um, I, I, I would almost certainly believe that he, he's going to try to figure out a way to to profit off of a, a loss in Arab American support in Michigan, uh, uh, to try to take those voters on his side to win that swing state. I don't know how he's going to pull it off, but but I uh, 
I, I, he, he, if anybody can get on every side of an issue and keep both sides of voters, uh, I think it will be Donald Trump. Muslim banners for Gaza is going to be a really interesting slogan. Well, speaking of that, Jonah, and I'll come back to you on this, I guess. Um, there's a real question of whether the current political dynamic on the left between the sort of pro-Palestinian side and the pro-Israeli side is actually hurting the Biden administration, whether they care whether it's hurting them. Uh, and so there's this little microcosm moment where this week they announced their national plan to combat Islamophobia. And it seemed really tone deaf. Now, the actual explanation is that they released their national plan to combat anti-Semitism several months ago. And they've, in fact, been working on the Islamophobia plan just for months later. If anything, uh, it's late. But nevertheless, releasing it this week, in the same week that they arrested a student at Cornell for making, you know, wild threats uh, to, you know, exterminate all the Jews on campus, um, causing absolute terror on that campus. And lesser versions of that we've seen at a bunch of other elite institutions, threats against Jewish students, physical assaults against Jewish students, et cetera. Um, are they just barreling ahead because they don't think any of this matters 13 months from now? Are they just trying to do the thing, put one foot in front of another? They needed a plan on this. They think it's serious. And like the timing just wasn't really a factor. How is this current moment working in the Biden administration when you have different parts of their constituencies now at odds with each other within the progressive movement? Yeah, it's it's a hard thing to game out. Um, I also, I'm going to be weirdly defensive of the Biden administration here. I, I believe also that November is like on the calendar, maybe not my calendar, but it's on the calendar as Islam Islamophobia Awareness Month. So like you might have had in the pipeline a plan to unveil something like that because of the normal BS identity politics stuff that, you know, had like at the beginning of Hispanic Awareness Month, you would have some stuff for Hispanic stuff. Anyway, the larger point is... Um, I, you know, I had Frank Foer, who had the who wrote the the profile of the Biden White House for the first two years on the Remnant this week um, on the uh, the real flagship, and um, he's making the case. I think he's probably right that Biden is actually a sincere Zionist in the sense that he is pro-Israel. He's much more from that. First of all, you can look it up. He's old. And so he, the, the memory of Israel's founding, um, which I think, I think it's the same year he was born. Um, um, and, uh, in the story of the Holocaust and all of that, he just comes from a tradition of Democrats or in the Truman vein that feel this way. And, um, and I think that's probably right. I think the problem for Biden is that I don't know if there's anybody else in the administration who actually feels the same way, right? I mean, it's one of the things I think that people don't appreciate about how Washington works is how much the social milieu that you, you're steeped in, that you live in, affects how you approach stuff. And all the young staffers at 
at, in the White House. I'm not saying that they're all anti-Israel or pro-Hamas or anything like that, but they just come from a different sort of Democratic Party, a different sort of approach to these things. The people that they go to, you know, uh, social events with, kids' birthday parties, soccer games, that kind of stuff, they're going to hear a lot more from people criticizing Israel than they're going to hear from people praising Israel. And I could definitely see Biden being undermined. I mean, I think we've seen it already, the pushes for, you know, uh, delays in the ground thing and, 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 and all the rest. I think, the, I mean, I wrote about this in the G-File yesterday. The, I think the larger problem facing the Democratic Party and the left generally is that this is just simply not the kind of issue that you can finesse. At, at, the, at the level of meta-narrative, at the national level, at the, at the global level, Either you think that Hamas is responsible for the people that they butchered, Hamas, which says they will do October 7th again and again and again and again, but we deserve a ceasefire, um, that, that, that butchering babies, that killing children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children leaves Israel no choice to do but what it must do. And the, on the other side of that is, and that harassing Jews on campuses is fair game and that condemning it is, is a, asking people to condemn it is too much. All of that. It's very much like a slavery issue in that, you know, which killed the Whigs because you just couldn't, you can't have a party that is on two sides of these kinds of questions. And um, maybe this war ends sooner than we think. And they can sort of say, well, we'll just agree not to talk about this for a while. But the longer this goes on, the more I think you could see sort of the equivalent of like the, the neoconservative types who left the Democratic Party in the 60s and 70s, the Reagan Democratic Party types who left um, the Democratic Party in the 80s. There are, I can just tell you from, from friends, family, relatives, friends of friends and all that in the sort of basic Jewish community, um, there are a lot of liberal Jews who are just like, what the hell? Like, why is this so complicated for you people? Why does it take... Why, why do you have to end every sentence that with but um, when talking about butchering babies, you know, and um, and there's just a whole bunch of people who are really trying to work through what they think of the people that they thought they were on the same page with. And I don't think it's just Jews. I think it's also people who just see the, this issue this way. Um, and I, so I think this is a huge long term threat to the cohesiveness of the of the the progressive coalition, as it were. I mean, Jamie, this has been much, much weirder than I thought it would be on the left. I sort of thought what we saw in the first couple of days were going to be the, you know, really loud voices, but very few of the loud voices trying to make this okay somehow. But it's not a few. Um, they are very loud. But you have the sort of top law firms in the country feeling the need to put out a letter that, to summarize, uh, basically says, if you want graduates to get good jobs in our law firms, stop producing anti-Semites. And this is controversial. Um, you have the region of California, one of the elected, um, it's an elected job in California to be a region over the uh, universities. <laughs> um, so the, they put out a statement calling the attack terrorism. They got a letter from the ethnic studies, blah, blah, blah thing with 300 faculty members from across the state saying, how dare you call it terrorism? And so this region then publishes a letter that's like, 
I am sickened that you don't want to call this terrorism. And I'm sickened that you're teaching our next generation. At the same time, you have, you know, 50, over 50% of Gen Z getting their news from TikTok, which I talk about beating your high chair. I mean, I'm just going to talk about this all I can. It's owned by China. It's run by China. And if I get one more email saying, no, it's not run by China, it's actually run by a company called ByteDance, I'm going to lose my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And do you know, like, check, try posting something about the Uyghurs in your so-called ByteDance run company. Uh, No, I reject that entirely. So we have a foreign entity basically teaching our young people to hate the Jews. China's made very clear that um, they're anti-Israel in all things. But what a great moment to be anti-Israel and to try to fix, you know, to use classical liberalism against the United States in this moment. Uh, is this going to be politically relevant in a year still? I, I, you know, on October 8th, I would have said no. But here in November, it's feeling more relevant than I thought it'd be. I think it it depends on how long the the war goes on. And to Jonah's point, I think part of the democratic strategy, if it doesn't go on too long, they'll just you know stop talking about it for a while and hope everyone, you know, uh, you know meshes back together. Um, but you know, but I like to say that you know October seventh to me was the most obvious moral question of our time, and because so many failed the test, it's become the most clarifying clarifying uh, moral moment of our time. Um, and and you're seeing that, you know, I think all over the place. And I think the long-lasting potential impact of it, uh, Sarah, to answer your question, is I do think that, I mean, I don't know if it killed the woke moment, but I think a lot of people are now saying like, whoa, 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 whoa. What, what is being taught at our school? How are there pro-Hamas rallies, which I think a lot of these things effectively are? You know, What are the professors teaching? What are these statements? Uh, after seeing on October 7th, with you know images that they were projecting, to the world. I mean, they weren't trying to hide what occurred on October 7th, Hamas. They were, you know, as you mentioned, putting them on social media. Um, and when you see that so clearly, and then students on campus either try to contextualize it or rationalize it, or in many cases, what we saw, you know, little images of parachutes as their advertisement for their parades coming in, celebrate it. Uh, I do think it, it made a lot of people that were a little bit silent with a lot of these, uh, uh, these, these, uh, woke questions, for lack of a better term, on, on college campuses say, hold on a moment. What is being taught on college campuses? What are being taught in schools? What is being pushed? Let's, let's take a step back here uh, and, and, and reevaluate what has happened uh, that we got to this moment where something like October 7th could happen and we have, you know, parades and, 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 and protests celebrating it or celebrating the, the people that committed it. Um, so I do think, I think, at least maybe I'm optimistic that at least there's going to be a begin to to reevaluate, um, you know, how far maybe uh, we've gone. I don't even want to say culturally, but how, how far we have allowed the campuses and other places, elite institutions to delve into insanity. I mean, Steve, let's let me give you the generic version of this. Um, a lot of women come out publicly and say they were brutally raped. And one side of the political spectrum says, we don't believe you. Which side would it be if we took out that the women were Jewish or Israeli? Um, you know, a minority, a 2% minority in the country, which has the highest 
number of hate crimes per year in the country is being attacked by one side of the political spectrum. Again, take out the fact that it's Jews and like you'd be shocked to find out that it's the left. Um, There's a group of people who make being homosexual illegal, want to purge all homosexuals from their ranks, potentially kill them. And then one side of the political spectrum is going to be their champion. Which side is it more likely? I mean, is this the end of social justice in the United States, which would sort of be a shame on its own, frankly? I mean, I'd put social justice in quotes, and I'm not sure. I mean, social justice, the way that it was described by the left and practiced by the left, I'm not sure it would be that bad to to be to have the end of that. I mean, the way that 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 they were talking about it on colleges' campuses over the past couple decades has been an abomination, and it's been filled with exactly these kinds of contradictions. It's just that I think what we've seen taking place on the ground in Israel, and what we've uh, heard taking place in the discussions here has, I think, forced some on the left to confront these contradictions, right? I mean, this is, it's not that the contradictions haven't been there the whole time. It's that they're finally being asked to, to confront them. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 watching the, 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 the scenes unfold, particularly on college campuses, and we should point out not all college campuses, but many college campuses and certainly on elite college campuses. Um, you know, on, on the one hand, it's, I think you said last week, Sarah, it's, it's both not surprising and shocking because we've seen sort of lesser versions of this or less offensive versions of this for years. I mean, this is sort of the way that elite college campuses have handled big, complicated debates. They simplify these things. There's, I think, peer pressure among students to join sort of the lefty side of these things and, um, and the debates aren't terribly sophisticated. There's a lot of, um, a lot of peer pressure and a lot of sort of group thing. What I guess makes it different is that it's happening against the back backdrop of what we saw on, on October 7th. And there's just no, certainly there's an attempt on the left to erase what happened then or, um, replace what happened then, pretending that these things that happened didn't happen. And we saw this very early where you had pro-Hamas um, commentators in the West saying, no, this didn't happen. Just did, there were, the, the babies weren't beheaded. Um, there weren't rapes. It was a concerted effort to say that this didn't happen because I think it made the subsequent part of the debate that much more difficult on the left. Uh, you know, I, I, I think this could very well be part of a, a broader realignment. I mean, I think there's been, um, you know, sort of in elite circles on the center left, a, a growing frustration with the, the wokeness, uh, the sort of mind, mind numbing wokeness from the left, the knee jerk wokeness from the left. And people have moved against, against that. Um, you know, will Republicans or People on the right, and and I'm thinking of this now in political terms, be smart enough to to take advantage of it. I, I I share the skepticism that Donald Trump will be able to do that in a place like like Michigan. Um, but even if you look at what Republicans are doing in Congress, um, you know, for the first time, conditioning Israel aid on um, a cut to the the funding of the IRS. You know, I, I I'm for I, I'm skeptical of increased 
funding to the IRS. I didn't like what, what Democrats did um, when they added that to the, the, the big bill. What was it a year ago? Um, but I'm not sure this would be the right time to, to have that argument. Um, just fund Israel aid. This should be a, a simple thing, regardless of the politics. I mean, I think there's an obvious moral case. But if you're thinking of it in terms of politics, there's a pretty simple political case, too. Yeah, I just want to add one thing. Is like I, I am normally not a, I, I've written hundreds of times or dozens of times about how I have problems with whataboutism. You know, so I'm not, but whataboutism is a very effective form of political argumentation and rhetoric, which is one of the reasons I keep having to write about it. And I do think on those terms alone, an incredibly damaging blow has been struck to the campus ideologue, HR, DEI com commissars who insist with straight faces for years now that, you know, you can't, um, you know, that, that kids wearing sombreros on Cinco de Mayo is an act of violence against people who take offense at it, right? That like, as I wrote in the G-File, there are people who legit argue that you can't say master bedroom anymore because master or, or have a master hard drive, right? Or a slaved hard drive, right? Like there are efforts to purge these kinds of things from the language and they treat it as if it is obvious and true and that you are on the side of hurting people if you disagree. You're on the side of creating an unsafe environment if you disagree. But when people bring around posters celebrating paragliders who rape and murder Jews, or when people chant things like glory to the martyrs or gas the Jews or whatever, well, that's complicated. You really have to have, you know, this is, this is worthy of a conversation, you know, and like the idea of making Jews feel unsafe, not in some snowflake way, but like literally calling their parents and saying, I may need to leave school because I think I might get beaten up or killed. Um, or they're being told, I mean, at Cooper Union, they literally told Jewish kids who were hiding from a mob, we can hide you in the attic. Right. I mean, that is so friggin' on the nose. It is, it is mind boggling. And people say that's complicated and you have to hear both sides. But how dare you, sir, say that we shouldn't get rid of the word master bedroom? You know, I mean, like it, the what about is in potential on that front is so friggin' enormous that it's going to be very difficult for a lot of administrators to defend themselves. A lot of people who push that garbage to defend themselves. And I, I, it's, it's, it's one of the only silver linings in this entire crappy moment is that they've, they've dealt an enormous self-inflicted wound to that project. Let me just add, I mean, I, I agree with what you said entirely, Jonah, and I don't necessarily have a, a point, but I think it's worth... <laughs> I don't necessarily have a point, but bear with me. <laughs> Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. <laughs> but how odd it is that, that it's only the, when, when Israel is engaged in, in, in some type of foreign policy event that, that Jews are, even if they have no connection to Israel, uh, felt unsafe, made to be unsafe on campus. I mean, the, the China had a million Uyghurs uh, in concentration camps. I've never heard anywhere in the world, much less a college campus, nor should they, by the way, a Chinese student or Chinese immigrant, uh, you know, being confronted by a mob and, and, and uh, uh, you know, told to account for the Chinese government, which, by the way, was legitimately doing something horrendous, as opposed to the Israeli government, which is trying to defend itself. Uh, it really happens in no other situation. Uh, you know, the Syrian government was engaged in all sorts of crimes for over a decade, still is. Um, never heard of, of uh, you know, um, 
Syrian nationals and anywhere in the world uh, being made to be felt unsafe or uncomfortable. It's only when Israel justly fights back after the greatest murder of Jews since the Holocaust do Jews around the world now themselves have to feel unsafe. Um, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think the point maybe stands for itself. I don't have a, any summation of that, but I, but I think it is worth noting. But Steve, we just will have a ceasefire so that Hamas can continue doing this. I mean, you know who made that point was Hillary Clinton. Yeah. I mean, the the ceasefire talk, I think, is um, is irresponsible at this point. Um, we, we, we have heard from senior Hamas leaders, I think you referenced it earlier, Sarah, who have said October 7th is just the beginning. We intend to do this again and again and again and again. And um, it's not just Hamas. I mean, you've heard this from Iranian regime leaders, biggest supporters of this kind of, of terror for years. There will be no effective ceasefire. Israel has no choice but to eliminate Hamas. I think we all would want Israel to do what it can do to avoid civilian casualties. I would hope that goes without saying. Maybe it needs to be said. But the talk of ceasefire, I think, comes in some cases from people who don't want Israel to prevail uh, in this fight. And that's a strong accusation to make. But go and look at the people who are making the arguments in many cases. Um, and, I, and I think it holds. All right. We're going to move on to not worth your time. And boy, I've, I've got a question. All right. So, Jonah, I just assume you have an opinion about this, but I don't actually know. And I didn't tell you about it ahead of time. So the Federal Reserve is in charge of raising or lowering interest rates. And this can have a huge effect on the economy, but also on how people perceive the economy. And so what we've done is insulate the Fed from immediate political control by the executive. They're an independent agency, so to speak, because presumably if you were appointed by the president to the Fed, then right before every election, the Fed would drop interest rates, you know, goosing the economy, basically. And we'd have these real like boom and bust cycles based solely on election results, which we don't want. But instead, we have an independent Fed, which has all sorts of constitutional concerns for me. And maybe even more than that, they still can goose the economy whenever they want, knowing that it will affect the political environment of an election. It's just that they may or may not like the current president or who's running or whatever else. So Jonah, is fixing the Fed worth my time? Should I be noodling what's a better way to do this? Because it does seem odd as we contemplate interest rates every quarter from the Fed. There's just these people out there and we talk about polling and Israel and Gaza and all the political effects we don't really talk about the Fed's political effect. Is there something specific in the news that I have missed in my travels that has prompted this? Or is it just the... No. The, okay. Okay. I just, I didn't know if there was, <laughs> there was some touchstone here that I was missing. Um, no, they just decided not to do anything. You know, whatever. The Fed was like in the news as they are every quarter about interest rates. Yeah. So like, you know how there are some legal issues that like normal people never talk about? But like, because you grew up in federalist society land, you know, people who can like, you don't lack for people in your life talking about the unitary executive or something, right? Because you know those people, right? 
having grown up in like National Review land um, with a heavy emphasis on the sort of Libertoid von Mises adjacent world and stuff, I have not lacked for people talking to me about the Fed in my life. That's why I came to you. But is it actually worth our time? I don't know. Is there a fix to this little problem that I see out there in the world? Well, I mean, first we have to get to work on the demonetization of the penny, which is the real priority. No, um, look, I, 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 I honestly... <laughs> you know, I wrote a college paper on that. Did you? Uh, um, I really did. Um, yeah. um, send it my way. Uh, no, but It wasn't I, very good. I, 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 I'm troubled by the Fed um, in the sense that I think there's a good constitutional question about, you know, its legitimacy and all that. Um, I don't like the dual mandate. Um, but I have, I have, for the most part, practiced a, and I've mentioned this many times on my podcast, monetary policy itself is one of these things I very rarely talk about because there are people whose opinions I respect enormously on both sides of it. And since it involves math, I cannot myself get too deeply involved in it um, because I was told there'd be no math in my career. Um, So I don't, I mean, I honestly don't know. I mean, like the, 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 I think the feds is politically insulated as you're going to get uh, an institution that has to be appointed by politicians. Um, any, and for the most part, um, I think that the reputational professional concerns of the people who are appointed to the fed tend to trump partisan political things for the most part. Um, you know, uh, these people really want to be remembered as sort of Nobel worthy economist types and not, um, political hacks. And I think that that is a probably a better, uh, protection insulation from political manipulation than anything else. But I, I don't know. I mean, we should worry about interest rates, but I, I don't have a good answer for you. I'm sorry. You blindsided me. So. Can, can I add, I mean, to the extent that, I mean, I don't think anyone would suggest that the Fed is probably pro-Donald Trump, even though he appointed Jerome Powell. I doubt that it, as a mass they are. To the extent they're acting politically, if they were, uh, there's very little time for them to cut rates significantly that it would matter in juicing the economy before the election, considering the lags. Um, so, I mean, they're, all, they're not going to do it any, any it, probably at any of the meetings of the rest of the year or the beginning of the year. So that to the extent that what their moves are, are helping anyone politically. It would be potentially Donald Trump if these lags kick in and the economy does turn south. Um, so uh, I, I don't think they're acting politically and I don't think they have time to act politically or, or at least very much time to act politically uh, before the, the next election. But I'm just sort of counting on them. Like there's, this might just be the, you know, what is it? They're your deus ex machina to save us from oblivion well, like, or something? You know, the well, democracy is the worst form of government except all the others. Maybe the Fed is the worst form of monetary policy except all the others. I don't know. I'm hanging a lot on people caring about their own reputations. That turned out to not be uh, the best bet in other parts of my life. I mean, do you want to outsource it to AI or something? I mean, like, what, what, what's your solution? No, this is my problem. I don't have a solution. That's why I came to you, Jonah. I come to no, you for you solutions. We both know that's not true. <laughs> um, well, not like hair solutions. No, you, you <laughs> come to me to 
lay down little tiger traps to get me in trouble. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I'm sure we're gonna get comments on in the in the in the comment section about how what you can't talk about the Fed. It's like talking about chemtrails without eliciting crazy stuff. I mean, this is my life. I know. Like, I know. Talk about I know. Hey, next week. Let's talk about the gold standard. <laughs> Maybe we will. And with that, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, Jamie. And thank you to all you commenters who are about to hop in the comments. Uh, you too can hop in the comments and tell us about chemtrails, the gold standard, and your solution for the Fed for, I think, just $10 a month still. Uh, wildly cheap. Uh, and yeah, we do actually read the comments. So hop on in. And otherwise, we'll see you next week. And be sure to tune in for Jamie's interview podcast on Mondays on this channel. They're going to be great. Bye.